Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. Welcome to another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. We're going to mix it up a bit today and first I'm going to introduce my co-host my co-host today is Dan Rhymes. He's the resident landscape architect here at Worthy. Uh, it's a pleasure to call him a friend, an advocate, and a bit of background on Dan. He's done 11 years working in the Middle East, designing a number of prestigious projects for the rulers of Dubai and the Jordanian royal family. I'm sure they were low-key. Um, and world-class lifestyle precinct, Le Maire. You should look that up. Um, what I love about Dan his design approach is sensitive, engaging, considered, and the stimulus for that is curiosity, playfulness, and boldness. And the guest I have for you today needs no introduction with beautiful quotes like this one. Children and young people have the potential to be more resilient, responsible, capable, and creative than we ever give them credit for. It's quotes like that. It's writing like that that inspired me when I was an educator. I'm talking about the amazing Tim Gill. Thank you so much for joining us, Tim. It's a pleasure, Lucas. Um, just to go about, for anyone that doesn't know Tim's background, I'm going to hit a few of those marks. And there's plenty of those marks Come looking at my list. Tim has a master's degree in psychology, working with Children's Play Council and became director and what's now called Play England. If you want resources and content and a great website to get fill your cup, head to Play England. Um, an independent scholar, advocate and consultant on childhood, focus on children's play and free time. They're evolu evolving, not evolution, but you could call it that as well, <laughs> the evolving relationships. Um, his work cuts, cuts across public policy, education, childcare, planning, transport, urban design and play work. So amazing. That's why we love him. Author, and I recommend this book to so many people, The No Fear, Growing Up in a Risk-Adverse Society. Everyone should have that on their shelf if they're working with children. Gives talks and runs workshops across the world. Appears regularly on TV and radio and so much more, including being a consultant for Arap on areas such as Hackney in London and consulting right across the world and a direct consult to the Mayor of London on the sustainable development of London itself. You are one busy man. Well, thank you for that generous introduction. So, Tim, as we ask all guests, where did you play as a child? Well, so um, I, I grew up uh, in... Uh, the home counties of England, so in you know lots of countryside, um, and really the whole of of uh, the village where I grew up, the country around was was my playground. I could I could go more or less where I pleased from the age of eight, nine, ten. Um, I could ride my bike. Uh, you know, our friends and I could hang out uh, for hours at a time. So, yeah, I had a lot of freedom as a child, and 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 made full use of it. And a two part question: How did that contribute to your work now? And what's the biggest factor impacting how children are living their life now? I think it has had a big impact on my work. I guess what I've taken from that, those memories and that experience is that there's something of a kind of magic ingredient of childhood, which is about that, that taste of freedom. Of, I sometimes talk about feeling what it's like to be a human being, you know, to sort of trying responsibility on for size. Of course, we adults have a responsibility for children, but part of that is allowing them the freedom to find out you know, who they are, what they like, uh, to learn from their own mistakes. And, and I think you, children can't do that, can't make that journey to be responsible unless they are given some freedom. Um, and, and that really runs through all of my work, like really like a stick of rock. In fact, <clears throat> 
I'm just going to show you um, one slide uh, that I use all the time in all the talks I ever give that I hope will just bring home uh, both what I think is important about this and also how things have changed. So that, that your second question. I hope that what you can see is a map. Yep. And what you're looking at is a map of what you might call the right to roam, the kind of roaming range of four children who are all eight years old, but they they grew up in the same city, but they're in four generations of the same family. Okay. So the big blob that you can see that takes up most of the map, that's the, the roaming range of the great grandfather in this family at, at the age of eight. So you can see that's about 10K across that, that blob. And then you can see a couple of smaller circles. You've got the, the grandfather at the age of eight. Then you've got right at the top, you've got the mother at the age of eight. And then if you can see that little black dot that's on the left-hand margin of the map, yep. okay, that's the roaming range of the son in this family today at the age of eight. So what you're seeing is a really dramatic um, shrinking of the horizons of childhood, okay? So to all intents and purposes, you could say that children today, many children, are, are kind of raised in captivity. And it's a massive contrast to the sort of free-range childhoods that, that you know, older generations can remember. Now, it, there are all sorts of reasons why this has happened. It's complicated. It's partly about culture. It's about family life. But I think part of it is about the environment it's about you know the towns and cities that we built and that, that, that in particular traffic has become a, a a massive danger and it's something that we just kind of got used to in our lives but i think that's that's one of the that shrinking of horizons of childhood is one of the biggest and most underexplored changes in the nature of childhood and i think what we take from that is that we can't turn the clock back of course but what we can do is say okay we need to kind of compensate children for this loss of experience, we need to figure out different ways that we can allow something like that taste of adventure, that taste of freedom, um, that, as I said, is such a, a vital ingredient of a healthy childhood. And that leads me into the next topic. It's a great link in um, to a subject you're very passionate about. It's not only as in you're focusing on the book No Fear was very focused on that childhood experience, but you've moved into the realm of that urban design and moving beyond the park. So I might hand it over to Dan for his first question that he would love to fire away. Yes. Um, hi, Tim. Um, so the question is, what are the critical factors determining the success of play environments in intercity, inner city urban centres? Sure. I mean, I think you, I, what I'd say is you, we need to sort of take back from the idea of play environments, step back from that and think instead about how can we make whole neighbourhoods more child friendly? How can we make it easier for children to get around neighbourhoods and give them great places to play and meet and hang out as they're doing that? So you step away from the idea that our job is to create play reservations, you know, with sort of fences around them and, and whatever, and instead ask, look across the whole of a neighbourhood, the streets, the parks, the civic spaces, um, all of those outdoor spaces and say, okay, how can we um, open up this neighbourhood so that as children grow up, they can gradually, you know, explore and uh, uh, enjoy spaces, do the things they want to do, whether it's sport or whatever, and um, and spread their wings at the same time. So you end up with this idea of two dimensions of child friendliness. One dimension, if you like, is, is you know, there are lots of good places to play, and you and I will probably talk more about that. Um, but on the other axis, you've got child mobility. Can children get around the neighbourhood easily, especially can they get around easily on foot or by bike? because heads up, kids can't drive. Okay, so the normal way that grown-ups get around neighbourhoods in their cars uh, by actually choosing to drive is not available to children unless we just want to taxi them everywhere. So there's a big message from my work about reducing the impact of, of traffic and cars in neighbourhoods and at the same time um, designing great places, a variety of places with nature, with risk, uh, with social space, 
that are distinctive, that are engaging, that people want to come back to. Um, and, and it's only when you have both those features that you have a, a great place for kids to grow up in. Thank you. So I suppose you're, you're suggesting there um, is, is that potentially there's, a, there's a, um, an ecology or a, sort of a, an infrastructure of play spaces, of linkages, and it's the sort of classic urban um, design thing of having these green fingers or corridors. Um, and you're suggesting potentially that that would be the case with play environments that you create, um, almost you can join the dots together and, you know, almost they, they service those children in those areas, in those pockets. Yes, I mean, you can have the greatest playground in the world, but it's no use to a lot of families if it's on the other side of a busy road, right? Mm -hmm. So you absolutely have to stitch together um, and connect up uh, the spaces that we're making, make them great, but also make it easy and safe for families and children to get to them, both, you know, of course, when kids are younger with their parents, but as they grow up, on their own. And that's why so much of my work these days is focusing not on the design of the play space, but on you know, how can how can kids walk to their local play space? How can they walk to school more easily? How can we make it easier for kids to cycle? So uh, that, that takes you straight into how you connect up uh, the spaces uh, and, and create networks of for walking and cycling and also thinking more about density and that's an, an interesting question you know that uh, i think a lot of people have this idea that oh, it's, it's really bad for kids to grow up in high density areas um you know and the, and, and the ideal childhood is suburban and lots of space actually it doesn't always work like that you know you've got lots of families now in australia there are some some neighborhoods in australia now where you have a lot of sprawl you have these sort of in exclusively residential developments miles from any other facilities and, and it's kind of a bit like an open prison sometimes for families that, that, that you know, they might have a nice backyard uh, and, and a big house, but they, they, they need to get in their car to buy a pint of milk um, or go to a playground. And for a child, that's a kind of imprisonment. And that's really not a healthy uh, habitat for children to grow up in. Yeah, that's one of our hugest challenges in our area is the coming to life of the estate living 400 blocks wedged in where you can't fit even a trampoline in the backyard because it's affordable and everyone can live there. Um, the Australian dream of owning their own home, but they're surrounded by treated pine fences, six foot high and they clear out the vegetation. So it's ridiculously hot to move around those spaces and you have to get in your car to move absolutely everywhere. So then yeah. it's getting pushed back onto the school for the child's childhood. Like these memorable yeah. childhoods are gonna be, their reflection is gonna be at a school. So completely skipping that experience. Just to go back quickly to that diagram and you were speaking of, you know, the challenge to cross a road. What's more hinder, what's more of a hindrance to the child? Because if you look at the great grandfather, traveled huge distance and I'm sure it was challenged and full of risk. So is it the environment that's a deterrent or is it the stigma and mm -hmm. permission? Right. I mean, I, my personal view is I think the, the single biggest cause of that shrinking horizons and, and the loss of freedom for children is, is the dominance of the car over the last 40, 50, 60 years. Other people will have a different view. We'll talk about you know, culture and, and, and parental fears. I guess one, one, one thing I will say is one of the things that of course we now have and, and the sprawling suburb is a perfect example of how you bake in car dependence when you build in a certain way, okay? It would be impossible to live a car-free life in a, 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 in a suburb like, like the ones you, you've just pictured. Um, so, you know, I think what then happens is, is, is the fears and the anxieties partly kind of um, almost they're like a rationalization of the fact that, that, that a lot of neighbors these days feel, you know, you look, people look out of their front doors and they don't see other people getting around on foot. Um, everybody's in a car. Uh, we're a social species, you know, we're, 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 we, we thrive and, and, and have a hunger for places where there are other people, and that's probably even more so with children. 
So yes, other factors are involved in that, that change that we're talking about, the loss of childhood freedoms. But, but the problem with a kind of car dependent culture is that the built environment, the habitat gets fixed and then it's really hard to do anything about it down the line. You can change culture, you can change, you know, uh, um, the, the economies of families, you can help mums spend more time, you know, get better support with childcare, but um, it's pretty hard to change the, the, the basic physical nature of a human habitat once it's built. Mm. Um, this next question really relates to um, the work we've done with the Bernard Van Leer Foundation and the Urban 25 um, initiative. Um, it was really sort of obviously you've you know, looked at all these different cities and, you know, they're of different contrasts, different cultures. Um, and one of them was Tel Aviv, which I thought was very, very interesting. Um, being in the Middle East and having that, um, you know, you, you sort of identified there was the, um, I suppose, the, the different co uh, contrasting cultures with Muslim mm -hmm. versus um, Jewish cultures in that city. And so... You know, and, and then basically um, it was really about the sort of stigma about um, inclusivity and, uh, you know, the, the, the identity of those spaces and how that, mm -hmm. and is, is that something that applies to other cities and in general? Do you, do you feel there's a, there's a unique situation or do you think there is that sort of thing about communities identifying themselves as being a certain community um, and then obviously having mm -hmm. that stigma about the socioeconomic um, cultures in that area. Okay, there's a lot in that question. There I'm going to try and tease it out a bit. I mean, I think the first thing to say is, I mean, in my experience, having visited, I, well, it, just for the study for my, I've got a book coming out called Urban Playground. I should give that a plug. So, Urban Playground: How Child-Friendly Planning Can Save Cities. Um, and visited a dozen cities in in uh, Europe and North and South America in. Uh, I've also visited Australia, New Zealand, Japan, China, uh, uh, the Middle East, as you've said. I've yet to find a community anywhere that doesn't want, you know, great places for kids to live in, okay, that doesn't want places where kids can play, that doesn't want it to be safe for kids to get out and to walk to school. Everybody wants to live in a neighbourhood like that. So I think two two things. First, we if those of us who are interested in promoting this vision, who want to see more child-friendly neighbourhoods, it needs to be an inclusive and an equitable vision. Okay, um, uh, we can't we can't just say, oh, you know, uh, let's run programmes where where neighbourhoods come to us and say, yeah, we'd like some uh, nicer playgrounds or or better streets, um, because we know it'll be the middle classes, it'll be the privileged people who will be at the front of that queue. Okay, so you, you, you do need to be proactive about um, making sure that programs are equitable. But secondly, I think we do need to learn to listen and engage with, with poorer and diverse communities and communities that are neglected or underserved at the moment. And I think that's, you know, that's something that, that municipalities around the world are struggling with. They were really struggling with it in Tel Aviv. Um, and it's 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 not easy, especially when you've got communities that are actually suspicious of, you know, municipalities or where, where there's a really fundamental divides between different uh, ethnic or cultural groups. But I, I, I guess one thing I would say is I think there's talking about children and also children playing and getting together can be a cat, a really positive catalyst. And, and I've seen this where, where you know, neighbors where there is conflict that the adults might have big disagreements. But one thing they might well agree on is that they don't want those disagreements to continue. You know, they want their own kids to live in a, in, in a, in, in a more diverse, in a more inclusive community, in a community where there are fewer divisions between different groups. So, so thinking more about children, where they play, how they meet, um, the time that children from different cultural groups spend together that can be a real catalyst. And actually, I'll just share with you briefly. I visited um, a wonderful park in the, in the Western Parklands in Sydney, 
right, which you, as you probably know, is a very diverse area with a lot of, of um, underserved communities. And it was a wonderful park designed by Fiona Robay, who you probably know, uh, a, a great designer. And she said, you know, we're forging the next generation of Australians in this place because you, you I, I visited, we looked around, there were, there were people from all four corners of the earth, you know, in terms of their heritage, sharing that amazing uh, Lizard Park, um, in the Western Sydney, Sydney Park brands. So I think that's a, um, a positive vision for how we can, through play and thinking about children, uh, start to, um, you know, get beyond some of these divisions in society. In, in your travels, have you seen any particular cities reach those um, at-risk communities well? And how did they go about it? That's a good question. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that the work that um, one or two designers have done, um, so I've mentioned Fiona Bay in Australia, I think Dinah Bornat, who's an architect here in, in London, who's looking at housing developments um, and how to make them more inclusive. I think she's doing some good work um, I think it is something where we have to put our hands up and say we're not doing a good enough job right now. And, and that is, is part of this wider conversation about racism and about discrimination. You know, look at the look at the, you know, your, your typical planner or urban designer or landscape architect. You're not going to see very many black or brown faces in those professional groups. Yeah. That's changing. And that has to change before we can make real progress. But I think the good thing is the, the conversations are happening. They're difficult conversations. Um, you know, those of us, basically, you know, white people, people from people who have privileged background, one of the things we have to do more is listen. You know, uh, I don't have all the answers. Um, uh, you know, we need to listen more and, and be responsive, um, as well as, I think, being clear about our own vision, which, which I've set out of, a more inclusive um, and you know uh, a society where everyone feels at home and everyone feels valued. Yeah, and Dan and I before the podcast were having a conversation around um, how London is laid out with the urban infrastructure. Do you want to th that question around well, the yeah the I suppose, on top? I suppose yes, it's the it's the diversity of London when you've got um, I suppose in the, in the Thatcher. Um, years when there was that real, um, you know, mix of socioeconomic housing groups together, and it was sort of almost almost like a it, it was sort of say in Australia commission housing in, in very wealthy suburbs, and having that real mix and how that's um, it has to a very unique situation that there's not many places around the world that have that um, that tapestry. Um, mm -hmm. And has that been an advantage or disadvantage for breaking down the stigma of other cultures? Um, it's, it's a little bit outside of my area of expertise. Um, so, I mean, I, I can tell you, I know that London is unusual, for certainly compared to other British cities. Um, Neighbourhoods are more diverse, and I mean diverse in a literal sense, um, you know, that, that, that you have people from different communities and different socioeconomic groups living together and sharing neighborhoods in a way that you don't see even in other British cities. That's, that, that is true. You, you, you also have bigger um, uh, inequality in London. You know, the, the richest are richer. Uh, the, the gap between rich and poor is bigger in London than other parts of the country. So, so it's complicated. Um, mm. I think um, there is more that we can do in London to uh, make uh, it make the city work better, particularly for poorer families, families from, from black and minority ethnic groups, um, uh, disadvantaged families. Uh, but actually, I think the public space in London, the parks and the play spaces, on the whole, work pretty well. And there's some, there is some, again, some research on that. An American um, play uh, scholar, um, Megan Talarovsky, did a wonderful report. Her, her outfit is called Studio Ludo. And she spent months visiting dozens of London playgrounds and just seeing how well they were doing and how many people come to them and the age spread and so on. And, and comparing them with some playgrounds in the, in the USA. And she showed that London playgrounds were more popular and they were also cheaper. And they, and they, um, 
the design of those playgrounds was more varied. So I think we can go some way to to making uh, well, we can we can take some pride from some of the good things that are happening in London. But I think there's more that we need to do. And I also think, you know, every city is different. We can learn from different cities. That's why I do a lot of what I do. But we can't just assume that something that works well in one city will work well in another. Do you have a standout project that has like within creating environment, not just within a um, playground sense, like a whole area? Do you have a standout area that is your like your favorite go to? <laughs> yes, that's a very good question, Lucas, because I do indeed. And in, there's a section in my book which is headed the ultimate child friendly neighborhood question mark. Um, and it's the neighborhood of Vauban in Freiburg, um, which is a city in, in Germany. And Vauban is an eco suburb. So it's about five or 6,000 people, uh, apartment living. And it was, um, uh, it's a wonderful place to visit. The key thing about, there's lots of interesting things about Vauban, but the key thing about it goes back to what I've talked about earlier. It's effectively car free. Okay, so if you own a car, a car in Vauban, and most people don't, but you have to park your car in one of a number of multi-storey car parks around the edge of the neighbourhood. So what that means is the whole of the space between the buildings within this, you know, big chunk of land is available for public use. You know, play space, uh, kicking balls around, walking and cycling, green space, nature areas, and, and the cars are all to all intents and purposes out of the picture. Now you can drive your car up to, to, to offload shopping or, or, or whatever, but for the most part, it's a car free. And so, and I visited this area twice for, for, for significant periods each time. And it's just amazing to see how many children, how many parents, how many carers, older people are out and about in this space. You know, even on a cold, uh, winter's day, um, you know, people that put their coats on and they just step out their front door and they're immediately in in the kind of space that I think any of us would say, wow, this this is just a nice neighborhood to be in. So, uh, you know, of course, it's 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 an inspiration and a provocation. It's not a blueprint. You can't just sort of cut Vauban out, lift it out, drop it in the suburbs of Brisbane and it will work. But I think it, it gives us a sort of compass point, yes, a sort of a direction of travel um, and some of those features that I think we can learn from and we can be inspired by and put into place uh, in, in, in other parts of the world. Thank you. So another question, what data surprises you the most when doing your research? Yeah, I, that's, that's another good question. Um, uh, I, I'm firstly, I, I, I like data. I'm actually a data person. In a previous life, I, I might have grown up to be a mathematician, would you believe? So um, I think numbers are really helpful in fleshing out the picture, um, you know, and, and testing our assumptions um, and getting us beyond anecdotes. Um, I think I'm, as you can tell, you know, I believe we need to, to get a better balance between the needs of the car and car drivers and, and, and other needs. And I think our car culture is, is too dominant. And I am endlessly surprised and shocked about the statistics um, around car dominance. I'll give you one example. I was just looking the other day into, and you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a tragic story, um, but the, the, the level of road deaths in the states okay um so if you look at the last hundred years you will see that, that for most of this period in, in in the usa tens of thousands of people were dying every year because of the car tens of thousands so we've got you know and in some years it was 40 50 000 people so um if that were any other consumer products imagine if you know some some i don't know Dyson or Samsung said, hey, we've designed this really great new consumer product. People are going to love it. There's only one problem. In ordinary use, it's going to kill tens of thousands of people a year, including a whole lot of children. Well, you say, hmm, yeah, maybe we need to redesign this product. 
but somehow because because of the attraction and the marketing and the way the extent to which cars have embedded themselves in our psyche we we kind of we don't think that way um i, I could give lots of other examples but that that was something that just I, you know i found the other day and thought wow um we really need to wake wake up to this and of course we haven't talked very much about sustainability and the climate crisis and the changes that we all know we're going to need to make to to live more sustainably in the future but at the top of that list, surely, is moving away from private car use. Yeah, and it's and there's almost almost a an irony there that you know the car represents freedom, whereas you know yeah. it's what it is is it actually is it's actually counter to children's freedom and people's freedom to roam, right to roam, as you as you mentioned yeah, before. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, cars, the history of urban design, you could almost say. Or the urban planning was a kind of dirty war between children and car drivers even let's talk about playgrounds 200 years ago there were no playgrounds in cities playgrounds were invented because cars started to take over the streets in urban city you know in cities and people said oh this is terrible kids are getting run over they're playing in the street they're getting run. we we need to create places where kids can play safely answer the playground um so um, yeah, it, 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 it's, you're absolutely right that, that for children, the growth of the car has by and large represented a form of imprisonment and a loss of freedom. Of course, it's different for adults. And I know there are some good things about having cars. By the way, I own a car myself. Um, so, you know, uh, I, that's a reflection of the extent to which the car culture is baked into the neighbours where we live. Um, right now, it will be difficult for me and my family to do some of the things that we need to do without a car. But I am absolutely signed up to a future where we are less car dependent and where the car is less dominant in our lives than it is now. Thank you. And so just leading into that quite nicely, um, how do you feel ecology and biodiversity um, can be included in, in the urban play environments um, and I suppose sort of weaving into that whole infrastructure of yeah um, of of play spaces. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's a no brainer that play spaces should be green and naturalistic uh, for the most part. I mean, there are one or two exceptions. You know, if you've got a great designer who just thinks it's really fun to do stuff with concrete, every now and that's right. But but by and large, you know, we know first of all, kids love nature. Kids, you know, kids love getting out, getting. Um, you know, sand between their toes, mud in, in their fingernails, climbing trees, uh, you know, looking for bugs, all of that stuff that, that Lucas, you, you would have been doing when you were an, an early childhood educator. You know, it's, it, it, it's that, you know, the, the, the term is biophilia and, and the vast majority of us, we know what, you know, the good things, the, the way that being out in, in, in lovely green space makes us feel. Uh, secondly, they're just often you know, more adventurous and richer places for children to play. So if you care about children playing more, you should care about nature. Um, and the links with sustainability, uh, with, you know, caring for the planet are also crystal clear. So, um, you know, we, we really, we, you know, need to make, take much more seriously the goal of bringing greenery into urban spaces, into play spaces, into parks. Now, I think the problem is it's it's actually about sort of figuring out how to do that in a way that 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 municipalities can cope with mm. you know because there are some cost implications there are you know certainly in the uk we had a trend in in the past 20 years of you know municipalities having limited budgets worried about maintenance um but actually i think if we can figure out ways to, to properly celebrate and to kind of monetize and value the, the, the contribution that green spaces make to our health, to our economy, you know, who doesn't want to live next to a park? Um, so we know that houses that are near parks, you know, uh, ha have higher values. I don't, th I don't think it's beyond our capacity to figure out ways to create more sustainable funding and and sort of you know business models so that green space can can take its proper part in the urban fabric 
And I love in London is you can just walk around a corner and there'll be a pocket of a little green space. And um, visiting Kat Prisk, who who's uh, on the board for Outdoor Classroom Day in Hackney. I'm sure you're friends. Yeah. Um, we are friends, yeah. 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 She gave me the tour of the Hackney playgrounds um, while I was there with my children. So, but it was, she was, it was amazing to hear that London actually is like the national park city compared to the density of living and compared to the green space. But in the, what throws everything out is the ratio of people versus the actual time spent in nature in these spaces. People want to be a part of it. People want to live in it. But as actually children getting out and having prolonged amount of time in nature is still a problem. So how do you yeah. overcome that? The green space is available, but I know in compared to America, as you mentioned earlier, it, they still have a higher ratio. But how can we still in, increase that? I think, I mean, the short answer is, is um, people like us need to lobby for politicians to take, to, to, to place that as a higher priority. Mm. Um, I think... For the most part, you're right. London is quite well endowed for green space, even compared to other other big cities in Europe. Um, and there are lots of great parks, small parks, big parks, pocket parks in, in London. I think um, we need the politicians to to recognise the importance of these spaces and to, to take better care of them and to make sure that when whenever things happen in London, whenever there are new developments or changes of land use, that green space is a central part of that thinking. And then I think the, the, the culture change, you know, the, the promotion for families, um, some of that education and awareness will follow that. But you can do all the all the kind of, you know, lecturing parents or what you like. But if, if there actually aren't um, places near their homes that feel safe and welcoming, then they're not going to use them. So, um, yeah, I think that political priority is there. And that one of one thing I explored in my work for the Mayor of London um, nearly 10 years ago in the Sowing the Seeds report was precisely thinking about early childhood education and supporting forest school programs. And you, you call them bush kindergarten programs uh, in Australia. But, you know, just introducing children and of course their parents to the idea that uh, local pockets of green space um, little you know bits of woodland um, are uh, great places to visit great places to play and great places to learn and then you 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 do literally and figuratively sow that seed for that child and that family as they grow up thank you and and leading into that um, Tim um, you know there's very much a in, in a sort of urban design speak the septed the crime prevention through environmental design um it's very much a, a buzz thing here and uh you know certainly councils are very keen to promote septed friendly spaces um how do you feel that i'm going to jump in you got to explain what that is okay <laughs> so, so, yeah so basically creating environments that are um encourage people to be there there you know there's no sort of dark spaces it's open um you know the the use of i suppose another aspect of them are trying to get people to that diversity of, of people to be in those spaces so it creates um you know more users it has more longevity through the day and that creates a more safe environment you're less likely to get mugged for example being in a space where there's lots of people around than a sort of quite dingy corner which is sort of uh you know quite sheltered so it really is, um, you know, something that's very uh, prevalent here. And I guess how does that work with design of play spaces and is there an opportunity there? Yeah. Um, well, it seems to me that the basic idea is is right, that, you know, um, it's sometimes called safety in numbers, isn't it? We, we, we feel safe and um and generally you know well disposed in places where there are lots of people of different diverse ages and backgrounds uh sharing that space and enjoying it um uh you know that goes back to jane jacobs and her wonderful writings um, um i think the uh, in, in the uk we have a program which is called secured by design which i think is similar to the to the i'm guessing anyway that mm. i'm not familiar with the details of the um design guidance you're talking about and and 
you know, at a basic level, it makes sense. I think there are some tensions and some problems when it comes to some of the detail in in that. And it actually goes it goes to the question of risk. And it's a re it's a really interesting topic. So um, uh, when we talk about playground safety, I often say, you know, there's no such thing as a zero risk playground. You know, mm. in a good playground, sometimes bad things will happen. Children will, will fall off, they'll have accidents because that's just part of life and, and part of learning, you know, um, how what, what you can do. And I think there's a similar danger, the danger of the zero risk social environment where you say, OK, we have to create places where it's impossible for any anything bad ha to happen between different people. And that takes you down a road of, you know, hyper surveillance, um, complete lack of privacy, um, you know, sort of vast sight lines. And, and that worries me because I think one of the things that, for instance, you know, uh, people like about naturalistic places, about, about the woods or about, um, or, or even some parts of cities is you don't know quite what's going to be around the corner. Um, you know, there's an element of surprise, of uncertainty, and that if we try and make places, whether it's playgrounds or squares, um, you know, to give a kind of unconditional guarantee that nothing bad will ever happen, well, then you suck out all of that um, delight and and surprise, mm. uh, mm. and you, you're left with very bland places. Um, and I think there's a balance to be struck. It's, it's like a form of risk benefit assessment. And if you know anything about my work, you know that that is an actual tool that you can use to figure out, you know, safety. But I think it's also good for thinking about about social safety and public safety. And and another thing is different people have different views about safety. So a space that one person thinks, well, this is kind of fun and quite lively. Another person will think. Oh, I'm not really sure about this place. It feels a bit sketchy to me. That's difficult. And it can get particularly difficult when you have different people from different cultural backgrounds who take different sides of that conversation. I think we need to be honest, firstly, about the impossibility of the zero risk space. Secondly, that sometimes spaces can work well for some groups, but not others. And that's not great. We need to figure out how to how to deal with that. Um, but that uh, you know, we do need to have a balanced and thoughtful and nuanced approach. Um, and as I say, some of the guidance that we have in the UK, I think, pushes us too far in that risk-averse direction um, and away from some some design features that we know uh, large numbers of people really enjoy. And if you if you give if you give the anxious and vocal person you know, a kind of veto where one person complains to the council and says, oh, that, that, that's dangerous there, or, or, you know, that feature's causing real problems, um, then you, you, that can be a real barrier to creating lively, stimulating places. Yeah, basing the policy on the anomaly. Mm. <laughs> like, exactly. I'll pull my yeah. hair out with that one. And the race to zero is so real. Like, if you're racing to zero with zero risk, let's race to the bottom on zero experience for anyone to exist in. As like, as yeah. you know, like learning from you with that risk benefit assessment, as if you're going to deprive a child from an experience just for the maybe. And then what's number on the net maybe being the database person that you are. Um, yeah, I mean, numbers will only take you so far, of course, you know, they, 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 I, I fully accept there's genuine fears. Some people have genuine fears about what's going to happen to their kids. Mm. And I, in my experience, generally, those people don't, numbers don't persuade them. You can t say all the figures you like about child abductions. And it's like, yeah, but there was that one child who dot, dot, dot. And we, we, ha we have these terrible, tragic cases that live in our memory precisely because they're so rare. I think that what helps you some people to overcome that is to fight the emotion with emotions and say okay what kind of childhood do you want for your child you know how do you think it feels to be a child who's told that the world is a terribly threatening and dangerous place and that if they step outside their front doors then they're at a great you know uh, personal peril what what what's the you know how is that child going to feel about growing up and those, that point in their lives when they eventually do have to make their own way in the world and have to 
you know, take some responsibility for themselves. Actually, the, I'm reminded of a, a kindergarten in Canada, uh, in Toronto that I visited, where the principal had a very robust approach to risk. And this is precisely what she said to parents, um, you know, who were worried about what she let the kids do in the playground or whatever. She said, look, in this kindergarten, we're in the business of helping people grow up to be responsible humans. When do you want that to start? When do you want your child to start taking responsibility for themselves? Is it now in my kindergarten? Is it in grade two or grade five? Mm. Or, you know, when they're 15 and going to their first party, when they're walking down the aisle, when do you want this to happen? And, and I thought that was a really powerful way of, of getting at the kind of heart and soul of why the zero risk mindset is so damaging. Thank you. And I guess that's that sort of leads nicely into what, you know, what are the real practical ways that you know, parents can overcome that fear? I mean, is it a case of um, community watches or just being able to um, just have that more peace of mind that their children can go out into that wider realm and not worry so much? So those are sort of practical things you could suggest. Can I jump in first? Let's take it before that and think what what's led us to led to so many parents in the community being so risk adverse in your view? Um, well, uh, it's complicated. It is uh, complicated. I, I think some of it does go back to, to the physical habitats we've created that, that reinforce a kind of individually atomized, you know, lifestyle. I think there's partly what sociologists call the risk society. So, you know, that this sort of, shift in the post-war years, maybe in the sort of 60s and 70s, especially, uh, where, where, with a heightened focus on, on the bad things that would happen and, and that, you know, there's a social imperative to eliminate risk wherever you look, um, which, which is like a good idea taken too far, you could mm. say. Um, I think there are, there are just basic things about how, you know, parents, both Mums and dads are working longer hours these days than they were 10 or 20 years ago. So that raises questions about, you know, who is at home or, or who's around to look after kids or watch over them. Um, there's the growth of technology, which, of course, is, is um, massively reinforces the sort of indoor childhood, um, whether whatever your views are on the merits of, of social media and, and, and the digital world. Um, it's pretty clear, you know, when I think back to my childhood and, and the screen options that were available to me aged eight, well, it was two hours of kids TV on three channels, uh, you know, five days and one morning a week. So all of that feeds into the mix. But I think the good news is that growing numbers of people, parents, educators, uh, politicians, commentators, journalists are recognizing that we need to take action to open up the horizons of childhood. And, and so to come back to your question about what we can do about it, I think, you know, I'm not a parenting expert. I don't think it's my job to tell individual parents how to run their lives, mm. but I do want to fly the flag for, you know, a, a more free range childhood. And I also want to encourage parental solidarity and say, you know, um, there are lots of parents right now who are concerned about uh, where their kids can play and the freedom their kids can have. And there are practical things that, that, that parents can do at a very, very micro level, just finding allies and, and supportive friends. You know, you can, you can meet down the park together or you can set up outdoor play dates or whatever. The next step up, I think, is local community action. Um, in, in the UK, we have a wonderful program called Play Streets, and I know they're coming to Australia as well. And this is the idea of groups of residents in a street coming together to organize with the municipality, with the council, to just close the street to traffic for a couple of hours, maybe once a week, maybe even just once a month. And, then, and simply so that families can come out and enjoy the street space. And, and there's actually, that's now quite a well-oiled, you know, community-led model here in the UK. There are hundreds of play streets running up and down the country. So, you know, if there is, there's like a ladder of engagement. I think that the, the, um, you know, the parent or the, the, the resident or the local activist can take to start to make a positive difference in their family and in their community. And I'm going to jump in with this, <laughs> take this opportunity to ask a personal advice 
question. Um, I'm involved with the startup non-for-profit and we're, we'll be heading into at-risk communities to activate play in the form of adventure play, um, loose parts, mobile pods, and um, try to get that child, child, the children's voice back into the community. So what bit of advice would you give to me to keep in mind as we do that? Uh, I think going back to what we said earlier, listening, you know, really actually making sure there's space for dialogue um, and, you know, that, that you're, you might need to be prepared to change some of your thinking. You'd also, I'm guessing, want to perhaps change, um, you know, some of the thinking on the other side. And I think experiment and be prepared to get it wrong. I mean, that's what kids do when they play, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, what, what the worst thing a child can say is I'm bored, you know, I'm yeah, that's a that's a terrible circumstance. You know, and and children actively sat, seek out uncertainty and the new and the different and prepared to experiment. And I think we need to take out a leaf a leaf out of children's books in our own work and be prepared to get a little bit out of our comfort zones. But also to be have the humility and the um, you know sort of reflection to say, oh, you know, maybe that didn't work, and we'll, we'll try it differently next time. Um, I think those are the two things I would say, listen and, and, um, and experiment. Yeah. Thank you so much. And, um, to extend on something you said there about, um, demonstrating how children play is like, we're constantly asking children and trying to be like, oh, children need to be resilient and we're going to teach them how to be resilient. But we try to change our habits and we try one time and it doesn't work and we quit. Yeah. So yeah. And, you know, I mean, it, it's it's a really the, 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 we live in a world now where a single mistake, you know, if, it, if, it, if it's sort of, you know, cut out and shared on a social media and it's three seconds of somebody doing something wrong, um, it can it can feel like that's then, you know, if it can, can be a very frightening experience that, that we we and it, I, so I think there's a, a, a sense in which it is harder now for us to say. We're just going to try and see what happens. But but I think that is absolutely crucial. Uh, and I'm also thinking, as I say that, actually, kids don't have any problems with this. I mean, I, I don't know if you've spent any time looking at, um, like, skateboarding videos. Um, I used to be a skateboarder for my sins. You know, in, in, in when I was sort of, what was it, 10, 11, 12, it was a big part of my life. back in, So this was the 70s skateboarding craze. And it, it, so it still brings a smile to my mouth when I see, I see, I don't know what they're called, but I think of them as sort of fails, you know, the blooper videos yeah. of, of kids practicing the same trick over and over again and failing over and over again. Um, and so kids don't have a problem with failure, I think, uh, and learning from our mistakes. And we really need to get more into the habit of, of saying that as adults, because, you know, it, it's the, exactly, it's the obverse of the zero risk thing. If, if, if the only thing you ever try is something that you know you're 100% guaranteed to succeed, well, you'll probably never try anything new um, because you, you know that experimentation, a flexible, adaptive, what is it that defines the human species more than anything else? It's our adaptivity. It's the fact that we are more able to you know, figure out how to survive and thrive in different types of environments than in any, any other species on the planet. That adaptivity you can trace it straight back to children's play. The young of our species are nature's most efficient learning machines. And most of what children learn, they learn from their own efforts and their own mistakes. And, and we really need to be celebrating that, um, that ability to learn and adapt right the way through our lives. Great. So great. Yeah, <laughs> I, might, I might lift your mouth up from that quote. <laughs> Uh, Dan? Um, yeah, it, was, it was really a, a question. Obviously, you come across a lot of um, designers, architects, landscape architects, you know, creating work, and um, you know, in your in your time, do you have any tips or feedback or guidance that you think you could give for you know someone, for example, wanting out with a brief to design a new play environment in a suburban satellite area? Would you have any feedback you could you could give? Well, uh goes to what I just said, really, I, I think I think when it comes to play design, still the norm, the norm is not good enough, you mm. know, that uh, we're still producing around the world far too many boring, flat, sterile, um, formulaic 
spaces. So, so I really invite designers to try and stretch the brief with clients and, and get clients, but crucially get clients to, you know, lift their sights about what's possible. Um, and, you know, and, and take, for instance, a balanced approach to risk, to, to look really hard at uh, budgets and how you can, can you know, maybe take away some of that budget that you might have spent on acres of, of rubber surfacing and instead put some of that money into planting and maintenance. So, so the details, you know, we, we, could, we can argue over, but that basic, just wherever you are with a new client on a space, try and stretch the brief and win the client team over to the surely the basic job here. The basic job is to create great places that kids want to come to, to come back to, to enjoy, to be with their friends, uh, where their families are, are wanting to spend time as well. And that should come first. Okay, play value should come first, and everything else is after that. Um, and 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 get the client signed up to that expansive, ambitious vision. And there are lots of examples from all around the world of of great places. And actually, Australia, you know, you have some really good examples of play spaces um, in, in in the different cities and and public spaces. I mean, the the, the um, South Bank Parklands in Brisbane is just an amazing, generous, lively, diverse um, public space. You know, the, the, the Darling Harbour in Sydney, the Esplanade in Cairns, um, some of the great destination parks in, in, in and around Perth, um, the Naturescape um, in, in Perth. You, you've, got, you've got a lot of, of inspirational material to draw on in, in, in in your home cities and states and territories. And, and that's a pretty good place to start as well. And it's all in the data as well, isn't it? You know, that's with the people using it and enjoying it. And it's that it's that sort of concrete data that's gonna support future future designs yeah. to be like that as models. Yeah, so so the most popular parks in London, I mentioned the London study earlier that, that Megan Talarovsky of Studio Ludo did. The most popular park, she's got the numbers are the Diana Park in um, Kensington Gardens, amazing naturalistic play space, mm. and Tumbling Bay, uh, the playground in in London. Um, that actually, I you know, I put my hands. I had a hand in in shaping the brief for that and pushing the client to to have an ambitious brief. That's a fantastic naturalistic, you know, quite risky. Some quite big timber structures, lots of sand and water play, and it's the second most popular park out of all of the parks that um, that Megan studied. So, you know, we, we do have the numbers. We know what's popular and what works. And surely that, that's a pretty good test of success, right? That that you create places that, that hundreds of thousands of people come to a year. 100%. Um, a final question, simple one. What does play mean to you? <laughs> one of the most, the simplest and most complex question of the day. I... Th I Okay, thousands of quotes coming to my head. I mean, something about play is possibility. Play is about um, uh, enjoying a universe that's full of uncertainty, um, and 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 you know, engaging with the people and places around us in 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 a way that embraces uncertainty and experimentation, and uh, and and you know that, that that's about, that's about a cure for boredom. Play is a cure for boredom. <laughs> I love it. And I love when I ask you these questions, how, in, how after so many years of studying, looking at the data, it comes down to when I ask you about play, you like spark up and <laughs> like, you're just so enthusiastic for it. So I've got to thank you for that. And thank you for so much inspiration and passive guidance <laughs> on my own journey through, into the play realm and helping me find my purpose in the world. So I've got to thank you personally well, for that. Well, that's right. I should just really briefly give a plug for No Fear, the book that you Abs mentioned, which absolutely. you were very kind about. And that you can get a, the full text, uh, the whole book as a PDF from my website at rethinkingchildhood.com. So it's actually quite hard to get hard copies anymore. Yeah. Um, but the PDF is there. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, 
it's nice that the publishers have agreed to to share it and That's brilliant. um it's been a pleasure to have this conversation as well uh, both of you dan and lucas thank Thanks. you very thank much you, thank you so much um and all, for our listeners all the links will be in the show notes below this podcast thank you so much for joining us the phenomenal the inspiring the impactful tim gill Thank you for joining us for another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to sit down with both Dan and Tim. As always, all the links to the topics conversation that you heard in the podcast today are below in the show notes. If you've got anything out of this podcast, hit like, subscribe, and we look forward to you joining us again soon on Play It Forward.